Welcome to the New Abbey podcast. We are in our Lent series called Longing. The conversation today is called Moving from For to With. And our question for you to start with today is, what were you told about the cross growing up? Enjoy. the season of Lent, and we are talking about the idea of longing, that we all long for things, and that our longings are the longings for God. And as we think about this idea of longing, we also need to talk about suffering and sin and the cross. Did anyone else here grow up in evangelicalism like I did? Come on, my brothers and sisters, right? (laughs) Tell me about the light shows and the fog machines and the lasers. They were the best. I've done more altar calls than one can imagine. Um, But one of the weaknesses, honestly, that I'll say about evangelicalism is, at least in my experience, we didn't do suffering well. We talked about the cross, but the cross was just something that Jesus did for you. The cross wasn't something that you actually were engaged with because what we were ready for was pastels and Easter, my friends, right? We were ready to get to the joy. And part of the reason for that is evangelicals are some of the most powerful people that planet Earth has ever seen. So what don't you really want to talk about? That you too may suffer just like Jesus. Suffering is not something that I was taught well, and it has made me so appreciate the broader traditions of Christianity that lead us into suffering, that allow us to see a more robust understanding of things like the cross and sin that can actually make sense in Los Angeles in 2019. So what we're gonna talk about today is moving from an understanding of that Jesus died for us and suffered for us to that Jesus suffered with us. And to do that, we gotta talk about some things. We gotta talk about from bad news to good news. We're gonna help redefine and reclaim sin and the cross because who doesn't wanna do that on a Sunday morning? Then we're going to talk about cure deus homo, everyone's favorite Latin phrase. I don't know. No, she's like, no, it's not a joke. It should be made. Okay, but one time, okay, this is for real. Brittany and I are hanging out, and she gets an email, and the subject line just says, homo. Um, Not like homo sapiens, but like, you're a homo, and this is why it's bad. Yeah. Um, No, this is very real. Yeah. I guess that's not a funny story, but that's just a true story that I was going to tell with you. The subject line was funny. They made us laugh. Yeah, yeah. It made us laugh. I don't know how I'm going to recover from that one. Okay. Then we're going to move from magic to practice, and then we're going to talk about a few things. So to do that, let's read Luke chapter 23. It goes like this. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed, him being Jesus. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine, vinegar, and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice about him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. 
Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So we need to move from how we understand that God is suffering for us to this reality that God is suffering with us. And I would dare say this, that maybe that one nuance in change of words may reshape your entire relationship with God and how you understand the world. That most of what we have been taught, I would argue, is some bad news that God suffered for us. And the story goes a little bit like this. There was a garden, my friend. This garden magically appeared 6,000 years ago, something like that. And in this garden, there are two people without belly buttons, and their names are Adam and Eve. And these two belly buttonless people ran into a talking snake one day and ate from a magical tree. And because they ate from this magical tree, now all of humanity for the rest of time must suffer from a God who is very, very angry at all of us. Was that the story that you received? It was the story that I received. And that the rest of the Bible is God's effort to suffer for you because this God has been angry at you. And the culmination of what this God does is that this God needs death and violence and the murder of this God's own son so that this God doesn't have to be angry at you any longer. Was that similar maybe to the story that some of you received? And even me, as a young kid said, sounds odd, right? This sounds like a God who's maybe, you know, a little frustrated or, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not quite working out well. And the beauty of the story for me is that that's not the only story. That's just the story that we've received over the last 500 years in Western Protestant theology for a lot of reasons. That there is a more diverse and robust story of good news that I would say is even more orthodox and more true to Christian tradition than the story that most of us received about who God is, what Jesus did, the need for the cross, and what is sin. In fact, that for the first thousand years of church history, we did not interpret the cross through something called penal substitutionary atonement. What a word. Definitely made up by a bunch of white men, right? (laughs) That for the first thousand years of church history, we understood Jesus and the cross and sin through the work of incarnation. That God was with us that God suffered with us, that God was entering into salvation with us, that God just wasn't angry at us and that God needed to have a sacrifice satisfied and fulfilled um, through Jesus. By the way, this is only gonna get more complicated before it gets simple again, so bear with me. And that what I'm trying to do is not to be provocative on a Sunday morning, but to say that there has been a broader history of Christian tradition than what most of us were given. In fact, for the first thousand years of church history, one of the main ways that we interpreted Genesis was not literally, but we interpreted it seriously. And the way that we did that was through allegory. We believed that the Genesis stories were stories and poems that led us to deeper truths about our humanity and about who God is. And the thing that changed over the last thousand years um, is a, a... kind of a broader thing that took place and that has really culminated in American theology and Western theology as we've been scared of enlightenment. And as we got scared of enlightenment, we doubled down and took the Bible more literally. Let me say it this way. If the whole basis of the Bible 
is actually that sin took place in that garden and that the rest of history is based off of that moment, then how come there is no other mention of the stories of Genesis 1 through 3 in the rest of the Old Testament? Don't you find that odd? That if the whole story is really about sin that took place there, then how come it's never brought up again? Ancient Judaism understood this. Most of ancient Christianity understood this. And it's in the last thousand years that we've wanted to fight and argue about what's taking place in Genesis 1 through 3 as our understanding of cosmology or our maps of the world broadened. We got scared and doubled down on literalism instead of taking the truth of the story more seriously. And so for centuries within the early church, they would interpret the story of the garden in this way. The fall is something that happens to all of us in our journeys. It's not about a literal piece of fruit that was eaten. The fall is the story of what it means to be human. And it's this story that we all have to leave the garden, that we all have to grow up, that we all seek after the knowledge of good and evil. And that sometimes we seek after that knowledge of good and evil, even when it's not good for us. And you may be saying to yourself, Corey, you're making all this stuff up. No, read a book. (laughs) One of the challenges of Protestantism is that we said sola scriptura. We said the Bible alone. That's all that you need. As if you could just like lay the thing on your face in the morning (laughs) and just osmosis would take place and provide all of your answers for Tinder and Google and whatever else you have going on. (laughs) But it didn't work that way. And thank God that we have Christian tradition. Thank God that we have thousands of years of diverse church history of people who have witnessed and experienced the resurrected Christ in all kinds of different countries and places, and that's attributed to how they understand things theologically. That it's us who grew up in this room, most of us kind of in this like recovering evangelical world, that were given narratives about what literally took place in a garden and about how we should interpret that. But what if there's a more robust and larger story that actually makes more sense? Because isn't that true for all of our lives? That we need to leave home, that we need to grow up, that suffering is not a if, but a when, and that our journey is about a God who suffers with us along the way. In fact, the critical point of the Old Testament is not the story of Genesis. That's what we've made it. The critical point of the Old Testament is the salvation that comes through Exodus. And it's a story about a God who suffers with the marginalized and the needy and the oppressed. That's who this God is. You don't see in those stories the angry God that we always talk about, unless you're given that lens to see it through. And all I'm saying is, what if there's another lens? Look at this passage from Exodus. It goes like this. This is right after Moses has received the Ten Commandments, right? And is now talking to God and says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, Yahweh is what that means. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. Here's the power of this, is that what we're not dealing with is a story of magic. 
where some bad things happened in a garden back in the day and God is dealing with the problem of history by just sprinkling magical pixie dust over everything. God takes sin seriously, but we need to redefine what sin is if we're ever gonna do something meaningful with the cross. Sin in most of the world that I grew up in was this larger idea of missing the mark. Anyone get that one? Missing the mark is not an original New Testament idea. That is not how it was interpreted in the days of Paul. Missing the mark is not an idea that comes from Judaism. The idea of missing the mark comes from Aristotle. It was a very Greek idea of perfection. Judaism didn't do a lot with perfection. Why? Tell me the one perfect thing that you've ever seen in your life. Nothing. Nothing is perfect that you've experienced, so to speak. You don't have the grasp for that thing. That's why the entire Bible is this narrative of figuring it out. It's this text in travail. It's bloody, it's sweaty, it's messy. It's saying all kinds of different things because that's what your life is like. But that's not always the story that we tell. Maybe a better definition of sin goes like this, that sin is the palpable disruption of shalom, which comes from everyone's favorite theologian, Cornelius Platinga, if you want to do some Googling later. And this is more helpful and more robust because we've all experienced shalom or wholeness be disrupted on planet Earth. You have disrupted shalom. I have disrupted shalom. We have all been the products of shalom that has been disrupted. As we say it in here all the time, hurt people hurt people. That when you are hurt and that when you are in pain and that when you are in brokenness, you oftentimes hurt other people. That's what the Exodus passage is saying. That's the reality of where we're being taken there. The story of God is this God who is slow to anger and abounding in love and wants to suffer with us so that we can have a better way forward as human beings for thousands of generations. But God is not fooled to the fact that when hurt people hurt people, that thing will be passed on. How many of us have been hurt maybe in our family systems and those are the very ways that we pass on hurt to the next generation? That's a thing that happens. And so God is inviting us, the scriptures are inviting us into a way more robust story of how we understand sin, how we understand where the story actually originates, that the story originates in Genesis 1. It originates with a God who calls everything good and good and good, and good again. The story doesn't originate in in Genesis 3 where it begins with a problem. It begins with a good God who loves us, and that's the narrative that we take throughout the scriptures, which is so challenging for many of us to work with because that's not the story that we're given. And yet most of us are in this room because the story that starts in Genesis 3 didn't work for us because you were told that Jesus suffers for you and that Jesus did everything on the cross. And if you just do all of the rules right and get plenty of quiet time in and say that prayer and sign that pledge card and raise your hand and go to camp and sign the pledge card and raise your hand again, then everything's gonna be okay. And then what happened? It's not. It didn't all work out. But that's what I was told. It's just gonna work out perfectly because Jesus did all of the work on the cross for us. And so much of that story comes throughout church history, which brings us to Curadus Homo, which I know you've all been waiting for. (laughs) Curadus Homo is everyone's favorite Latin phrase for why God became man, written by everyone's favorite theologian. Let me try speaking English. Let's do all this over again. (laughs) Written by everyone's favorite theologian of the 11th century, Anselm. And Anselm was writing this piece of work of theology and doctrine for the church to understand God in his time in Western Europe when the judicial system is growing. 
And so he understands God in a punitive way, that God needs to be satisfied for something because that's how the judicial system works. And then what will happen is 200 years later, the church will say, well, that's not always how we've understood sin. And so we should have a giant theological council to talk about this thing, which brings us to the 13th century, which everyone was getting very excited to get to. And then the Franciscans and the Dominicans, they get together because they are these new Catholic orders that are telling the gospel of Jesus in different ways. The Dominicans are the smart ones, the educated, the Harvards. They are preaching the gospel wherever they go and they're using their words very clearly to do that. The Franciscans are just a bunch of hippies who love nature, my friends. And they're like, God just loves everything. Look at the birds, right? And they were two different orders sharing this good news of Jesus. And they are brought together by the popes and by the councils. And they argue about where, how do we understand sin and how do we understand the cross? And guess who won that theological debate in the 13th century? The Dominicans. Why? They were so much better at words. And since then, we moved 200 years, years further into the 15th century, and we get guys like Calvin and Luther who begin to tell us this, you are depraved. There is nothing good in you. You are piles of shit, Luther will say, just blanketed by the white snow of Jesus. Thank you. That is always how I've wanted to understand myself. And that reformed theology travels forward in this understanding about who we are in the eyes of God. And then you move that thing forward into American puritanical kind of theology, eventually into um, evangelical thinking. And what we get is the flesh is bad and people are bad and you can never trust yourself. And then we get to today. But thank God that doesn't represent all of Christian history and tradition and the lenses in which we've seen God through. That there are broader stories out there of how we can understand the cross and sin in Jesus. And that shift is moving from a place where Jesus is not just suffering for you because you're a pile of cow manure. I almost fell straight off the stage. Okay. It's good. But there's a story that we see throughout all of the gospels that Jesus is suffering with us. How do I know that? The hallmark of the Bible is incarnation not penal substitutionary atonement. That Jesus comes into the world and it's called Emmanuel, God with us. Try this little exercise out. Read any of the stories of the gospels and use the lens of God's suffering for you because you're so depraved and horrible. And they don't work out. The prodigal son doesn't work out in that version. That's a version where the, the father comes running out to the son and says, stop right there and make sure you repent and say all of these things because you have been so horrible and I cannot see you because I am holy. That's not what happens. There's this universal God who rushes towards you and says, I love you. And even the son tries saying, no, but father, I've sinned against you. And the dad's like, shut up, you're here, let's throw a party. Cows and Coronas, my friend. Look at any of the other gospel stories. Does Jesus go to the woman at the well and tell her, I am so sorry that you are so depraved and horrible. Please do not talk to me right now. No. He addresses her in her pain, in her wounding, in her brokenness, and suffers with her. And then Jesus even says all of these famous words at the end of many encounters with people, go and sin no more. Not go and be perfect, but go and allow the pain and suffering that you have to stop creating more hurt for you so that you create hurt for other people. Let me first meet you and suffer with you so that you don't bring more suffering into the world. Just read the gospels through two different lenses. 
Try leading it constantly through the lens of God's suffering for you and try constantly looking at Jesus of a lens of God's suffering with us and you will be interestingly surprised about how the gospels work out. That what seems to be more true of Jesus is a God who constantly suffers with us. How do we know? Look at the passage that we just read. Does Jesus tell the criminals who are the bad ones, who've been the punished ones, that they are horrible and that no good is gonna come from them? No. They're saying that about themselves because the truth of the gospel and the truth of the cross is that God, that Jesus didn't come so that God would change his mind about us. Jesus came so that we would change our mind about God. That the sacrificial system didn't become fulfilled in Jesus, it was ended in Jesus. Because what happens in the world of sacrifice is that we do all of these sacrifices because we don't know where we stand with God. But the radical incarnational story of good news Jesus is you know exactly where you stand with God. You are sons and you are daughters and you are loved and God enjoys you. You don't have to question anymore. You don't have to wonder anymore. Jesus is not going to the cross because of how horrible you are. Jesus is going to the cross to remind you of whose image that you've always been made in. Sissy, there we go. Yeah. Sean, when you get this recording, please bleep out Sissy and her explicit comments. She said fucking church. Okay. Here we go. That'll be on the podcast. Don't let your children listen to it. And we're back. There's a bigger story out there. But what's interesting about that story is what story actually produces fruit in your life? What happens to your psyche when you think that God has always been mad at you? What happens to your psyche when you believe that God has always loved you and tried to reclaim the image that you've always been made in? What will you pass on to other people if there's always been lines that makes you whole and that this God is constantly angry at you and we call that thing holy? Do you know what the word holy means? It means other, that this God is big enough and his universal love is so good that this God can see you clearly even when you can't clearly see yourself. That's a holy God. That's a God who's bigger. I am clearly fired up today. There we go. And Jesus invites us into a few things in this conversation. That the story of Jesus suffering with us is the invitation of God saying, I know. I know how hard it is. I know what it's like to be betrayed. I know what it's like to feel alone. I know what it's like to feel guilty. I even know what it's like to feel like God's abandoned you. Jesus' best words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Translated in emoji, WTF. (laughs) Seriously, right? The power of the cross of Jesus suffering with us is that we take on our hurt and we don't transmit it out to other people. That Jesus had all of the ability and the power to punish everybody right there who was crucifying him. Think about the story. If it's true that the God-man was being crucified, that in that moment, God could have judged the entire world, but instead, you know what does what? Chooses powerlessness. As Peter and Jesus are in the garden and they come to capture him and Jesus and Peter cuts off someone's ear, Jesus looks to Peter and says, stop. If I wanted to, I could call down 10,000 angels. 
I have the power to end this thing. But what I'm teaching you is to allow the suffering of the world to end with you. Don't pass on the favor of hurt that someone else has given to you. Take in the healing, right? Allow that hurt to shape you and to heal you until it becomes resurrection. That's the story of good news. And then it moves from a story that just happened 2,000 years ago to a story that you're actually invited into. A story where we're transformed by this good news and we stop transmitting out the hurt and the pain back into the world. Think how radically different the world would look if that's how we follow Jesus. If we said, I'm not gonna make another move until I've allowed this suffering to shape me. It's not something that I'm gonna run or avoid or that just Jesus magically takes on the cross. It's something that I actually have to work through. And as we say in here all the time, get a therapist. Go to spiritual direction. Don't do this thing alone. Find community around you. Pray, meditate, seek God. Allow these things to transform you, that your suffering is a gift. As painful as that sounds right now. I don't say that in any trite way. I say that that's actually the story that we are invited into. And then it moves to this. The story that God suffers for you is the most individualist, individualistic story there is. It's just all about you. And it's all about the magical words of the magical prayer that you say at that time. And as long as you say those things, it doesn't matter how your life is transformed as long as you get to press up to the elevator to heaven one day. How many people proclaim good news in your life and they were assholes? I'm serious. But what we get is to be transformed and say, we're not gonna pass that on to the world. We're gonna allow this stuff to shape us. And then it becomes a story of we. If we can allow this radical healing and transformation to take place within us, then we will have to go suffer on the cross as well. But if we suffer on the cross as well, then we're not gonna transmit the same pain that was given to us. And then imagine what the world looks like then. It's a very different story of a cross. That's a cross that you're invited into. It's suffering that you participate with. It's healing that takes place in your life. And I end with this beautiful quote from Ruth Haley Barton that goes like this. Sometimes I wonder if any of us as Christians are really ready for the journey of transformation. We long for more in our spiritual lives, that's for sure. But I'm not sure we're ready for the harrowing journey of death to the false self that any true spiritual journey entails. We want God, it seems, as long as we can have our successes. We like the ideas of being on a journey of faith as long as it doesn't require, well, too much faith. We long for the promised land as long as we don't have to leave anything behind. We want space for God as long as it doesn't intrude too radically on our packed schedules and conflicting priorities. We want self-knowledge as long as it doesn't cut too close to the ego bone. We want God's will as long as it doesn't make us look foolish. We want love as long as it's not too inconvenient. We want to buy the pearl of great price as long as we don't have to sell everything we have. And we're willing to wax eloquent about the Paschal mystery one week and a year as long as we're not the ones doing the dying. It's really nice if it's just Jesus doing the dying. That's some real shade. If you find those three or four people around you and answer this question, how does God's suffering with you change how you relate to God? Enjoy.
Thanks for listening to the New Abbey podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.